five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. I'm in Portland, Oregon today with Chris Rauschenberg, who is a photographer, an educator, a gallerist, a producer, and many other things. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, coming out on, we're here on a Monday, which is the day that most of the galleries are closed, but you were nice enough to, uh, to come and have a talk with me. Ah, my pleasure. Much appreciated. So your resume is, is pretty remarkable. You've done, first of all, you've traveled all over the world. You've made pictures all over the world. Um, you've had over 100 individual solo exhibitions of your work, which is hard for me to get my head around, having, I think, maybe I've done one or two in my entire life. But you've also curated hundreds and hundreds of other shows for other people. I'm curious about where, is there a, a space or a time or a place where your where ideas come to you? Where do your ideas come from for your own work? Well, uh, for my own work, uh, it's very much uh, a collaboration with the world. I think if you if you go out with something in mind, you, it just means you miss everything else, and the odds that you're coming across what you had in mind are very low. So I point. think if you if that you what you want to do is you want to get yourself into a headspace where you're really paying attention, and that sounds easy, but it's hard to do. Back in the days when I shot film, I would have these contact sheets and you know, go out in one day and shoot maybe three rolls of film and you look at the contact sheets and it's like, okay, the first contact sheet, everything on it is lousy. Second contact sheet's lousy, 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 lousy. And then there'll be a stretch of about eight frames where five of them are really good. And then it goes back to being lousy again. So it's, it's a matter of how do you clear out that sort of AM radio that we're always playing to ourselves in our heads about, you know, and what time does the bank close? And what do I have to do this and that? And, and, uh, and to really just look around and see things. I, I sometimes describe it as being in the headspace of a kid at a grown-up dinner party, you know, where you just, people are talking about stuff, but you just don't care about it. And you start looking at what, oh, this tin ceiling is really interesting, you know, <laughs> you know. Was it always that way for you, even when you first picked up a camera, is you just sort of went out and started shooting and then found your way to a project by being in the field? Or, or was there Pretty any... Much. Have you ever had a place or a space in your life? Or for me, I spend a lot of time in the car, and I found that driving eliminates a lot of other things, chatter in my life, and it, for whatever reason, it unlocks the time for me to sort of come up with project ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my uh, first project that I did when I was still in school, the first thing that I would still show anybody, um, is, uh, is pictures that were about uh, um, the sort of opposite of shadows, places where like light comes in through the window and makes a window-shaped piece of light on the floor. Yep. <laughs> and I have to make a long explanation because there's no word for that. And, you know, this Good whole point. thing about the Eskimos having a lot of words for snow, is, uh, that's a little bit of a folklore. But, but, in fact, if we have no words for something, you're pretty sure we're not paying attention to it or talking about it much. So, so that was my first project that really kind of had a, um, an idea behind it, let's say, where it was coming from a, it was coming from a place where I made a couple of pictures of these sort of spots of light and, and then had that thought that I just expressed to you and said, well, I need to shoot more of those. So that's, that's the one, maybe the project that came most from sort of like an intellectual idea of I should pursue something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then what ends up happening, I think, is, uh, you know, your work is constantly evolving. And just like with 
evolution in the animal world, <laughs> it speciates every now and then. You sure, know? sure. It's sort of a new project, sort of breaks off the old project and becomes a separate thing. And, uh, I mean, this is one of the issues that photographers always talk about. How do you know when you're done with a project? Yeah, good question. I mean, the, if you're operating in this fluid, organic way, you know because it changes into something else, just organically changes. And you, all you have to do is notice. Sure. <laughs> and, stop, and stop trying to put them in the same pile. You have to pay attention to your work and say, well, this is actually a new pile. Is there any particular amount of time that you typically spend on a project or, or things happen sometimes in a couple of days or a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of both. Uh, I mean, I just uh, I just put up as my critical mass entry, I just uploaded uh, critical mass as an online uh, portfolio sure. sharing opportunity. Some people view it as a contest, but it's really about showing your work to 200 curators at once. Um, and uh, all the pictures on it are from uh, about an eight-hour period. You know, but they also, they're, they're pictures from uh, when we were in Africa, um, it's Stonetown in Zanzibar, the old part of Zanzibar, the, the way the streets are, these sort of narrow little streets with these beautiful buildings and stuff. But I mean, that goes back to the first time that I was in Naples in the 70s and was loved the way the, the spaces between the buildings were these narrow spaces that explode into big piazzas. So is that a project that I worked on for eight hours or a project that I worked on for 40 years? It's kind yeah, of both. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of both good, at once. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how those things re, you know, reappear yeah. in, your, in your career in life. Yeah. And I did a big project of re-photographing at Jay's Pictures of Paris. I have a book out um, that's called Paris Changing that's uh, a sampling of some of the 500 at Jay photographs that I re-photographed. And, and that really entered into, I mean, I was really photographing in Africa as if I was at Jay still. <laughs> and so tell us a little more about that project because that's a really intriguing piece that you did. So you went back and you re-photographed about 500 of the different images that he had made in Paris. Yeah, I was in, uh, I was in a park in Paris and, uh, and I looked up and here were these uh, um, sort of spiral-topped uh, gate posts that I, I said, hey, I know you. What are you still doing here? It's not 1920s anymore, you know. And uh, so I re-photographed it from memory, and I said, well, what about that other picture I love? Is that still here? No, that one wasn't still there, you know, but I did sort of a, a different version of it. The, tr the, the, the big trees that were in Atje's photographs of Saint Cloud there were these big, beautiful, massive trees, and those have been all, those are all gone, and it's, uh -huh. it's like hedges. It's like this flat top, you know. So anyway, so that wasn't really there, but there was a, I sort of made do with a smaller tree and kind of yeah. <laughs> patched it in. <laughs> And then I thought, hey, this is really a good project, but I, it's something that I should do really intensely. Sure. And that was in 1989, and I didn't really have an opportunity to, to like, drop everything and work on that until eight years later. So, so 97 wow. and 98, I, I did three trips that were six months apart, so I would go and I would shoot all day, every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, for, uh, what was it, for three weeks? I think something at per trip, good, that's a lot and of just shoot all day every day, and then come home and and spend six months looking through them and figuring out, okay, what worked, what didn't work, what did I get, what did I not get yet, and then go back and do it again, and then come home for six months, and then I did the third trip, was the final one. I did did one in the winter because I needed to have some bare, yeah, leafless some, trees. Yeah, dark, <laughs> dark Paris. God. Yeah. yeah, I was a little worried actually that that trip was going to be a bomb. Like if it snowed. I was out. There's no Ache picture with a drop of yeah. snow in it, you know. So, but actually, the whole the whole nine weeks of the shooting part of the project, I only had. I came in out of the rain for I think an hour. 
Wow. I was like, I, was, I mean, in the winter, when I was there in the winter, it was cold. It's good. You don't, it was cold. I was using, you know, gloves with the fingers cut off and my little fingers, I thought we're going to break off, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because as an American, I don't think about cold in Paris. And then a few years ago, I went to Paris photo and I stayed at uh, a friend of mine got me an arrangement in a, in a very strange place. And my wife and I went and my wife's a rock, thank God. Otherwise, because it was freezing cold, there was no heat. And there, was, there were strikes all over Paris. So there was like no power, no heat, no gas, no yeah. transportation. And it was absolutely frigid. Yeah. And I thought, I don't, I think of Paris in the summer. I never think of it as like frozen zone. Yeah. Those starving artists, those were freezing artists those too. Those definitely <laughs> freezing artists. So you said something interesting, which is you made the first trip to Paris and then you came back and you spent like six months looking at the work and things. Yeah. And I'm assuming now that you're shooting digitally. And as now well, I am, but then I was still shooting, shooting, I was still shooting film. film at that time. And I'm most of the people that are going to listen to this to this broadcast are also shooting digital. And I things have changed in in terms of how people consume that and edit that work as well. So yeah. when you do things projects with digital now, do, do you find yourself working in the same way, saying looking at something over a six month time, or do things happen quicker in the digital space than they did back in the analog space? Well, things happen. Things happen quicker in the sense of there's all these steps that you don't have to do anymore. You don't have to develop your film and right. make contact sheets and you know exactly. Yeah. Um, and you you can basically look at a look at a pretty good work print on the screen. But that's the point where the where the uh, we switch back to the old mode for me anyway. And it's like I. I can't edit a project and put pictures in different piles and figure out what's going on with what. I mean, you know, as I was alluding to the answer to your first question, it's like, I believe in shooting everything that it occurs to you to shoot. And then you figure out which things go together. Oh, this is part of a project I never knew I had, but mm -hmm. I'm starting a new pile. This is part of this project, this part of that, you know. Um, so I think for me, it's really important to, I just get four by sixes made of everything, uh, everything that I'm interested in, everything that I would in the old days, I would have work printed myself in my sure, dark room sure, when I was sure, a black sure. and white guy. Yep. Um, and then, and then I have those to sit and I mean, you have to, um, you know, uh, for me, the kind of photography that I do is working very intuitively. So you're really in collaboration with the work and with the world, and you, as with any collaborator, you have to listen to what they have to say. So the way that you listen to what your pictures are trying to tell you that, that you're sure. trying to do <laughs> is, for me, is by putting them in different combinations. What happens if I put this next to this? What happens if I put this in? What happens, you know, and that then you get to eavesdrop on the conversations between those images, and then now you know what they're where they're trying to go. <laughs> people are going to think this is set up because I harp on people all the time. You got to print, you got to print, you got to print. Oh, absolutely. And tonight I'm giving a lecture here in town, a book book uh, to the Portland Photographers Forum. Yeah. And I have a box of prints in my, in my hotel room that I'm going to bring and lay out and have them yeah. sequence because printing is such an important part, even if it is four by six or three by yeah. fives or whatever you get at the local drugstore. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, to me, the idea of trying to, to, do a book or trying to figure out a sequence, trying to figure out a show without having physical prints. It's just inconceivable. I, I mean, when I was in school, I knew some photographers who said, yeah, I don't make contact sheets. I just hold the negatives up and look at them. And it's like, are you out of your mind? You know? <laughs> yeah. How, first of all, how are you going to, if you pick one out that you, that you want, how are you going to find it 30 years from now? And second of all, you're not going to, you're going to miss something you're good. You're going to miss it, yeah. You, there's things on there that you're not going to know are good. And it's never the case that the images that you think are the best ones when you're shooting, those never end up being the best ones. And the images that you think are the best when you're first work printing, 
Those don't end up being the best ones. It's always the best one is always some girl next door that slowly rises through the ranks and just keeps haunting you and you keep coming yeah. back to it. But if it doesn't have a way to haunt you, <laughs> have you it ever, can't. Have you ever found something months, years oh, after yeah. by going back to the contact sheets? Yeah. 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 I'm actually, I, I hired somebody to, uh, to be going through and scanning my old negatives and I'm marking up the contact sheets of which ones to do. And I'm marking up a bunch of things that I've never printed before. And so that's oh, exciting. That's interesting. You know, there's, uh, the, and some of the oldest work from the early seventies is like, you know, there was kind of a project there that I don't, I didn't actually do, but I, I might've done more of it than I think. Yeah. <laughs> you might've accidentally done the project. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, uh, you, you're the last to know. I, I had a project, uh, at one point, I broke a bone in my foot, and somebody stole my camera, and it was like I had this sort of, I hadn't been out of school that long, but I had this, like, months-long gap where I just didn't take any. I'd borrowed a camera from somebody else, but it was a 35-millimeter lens instead of a 28, which is what I usually use. Now I use a 24, but I used a 28 for most of my life. And I just, I just wasn't getting anything I liked. And then I finally I got a couple of work prints that I liked and kind of put them together. Okay, what, who goes with you? You know, what, are you, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I put together a show and, and printed everything and matted and framed everything and hung it on the wall and stepped back to look at it. And I went, hey, these pictures are all white on white. I didn't know they were white on white. I'm, I'm glad that the opening didn't, isn't until tomorrow, but somebody could have told me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but they were trying to tell me. I just wasn't listening well. So <laughs> most of what you do ends up in show form or book form or both. Does yeah. it, do you ever find yourself kind of getting distracted by that stuff when you're making the work? Or have you found no. a way to just completely isolate the work and then not think about anything until you're done? No, when I'm shooting, I'm just trying to figure out what's a, what's a picture. And it, you get into a very intense uh, concentration, I think. And, and I think there's a, uh, I mean, when it's working, you can also shoot with bad concentration, but you don't get much. Yeah. You know? And uh, like I say, I mean, this, this batch of pictures that I just uploaded for critical mass is all shot in a short period of time. But I have a big project that I did in the, in the giant flea market in Paris, the Glignancourt uh, flea market. And, uh, and I had shot there much earlier when I was a black and white guy shooting wide luxes there and, and regular black and white pictures. And, uh, and I was through with it. And then I was going to Perry Photo with some friends and, and uh, uh, Susan Winkler said to me, you know, uh, is there somewhere else besides Paris Photo that you want to go when we're all in Paris? And I immediately said, yeah, I want to go back to the flea market. Because the logic of my work was like that would be the perfect place to continue doing what my work had evolved into since sure. the last time I was shooting at the flea market. And I went back and, uh, and I, just, I just shot out the whole battery. I mean, I shot like 300 pictures in two and a half hours or something. And, and about 60, no, 40 to 60 percent of them keepers. Wow. I mean, it was really, so it you was were very in tune intense. With that place. Yeah, it was just like, wow. And of, of course, the big signs everywhere no, no photo, no photo, no photo. So I was using, I, I wasn't using a big digital SLR because they yeah. stopped me immediately. But I, I have a, had a little uh, Lumix. It's a, it's a great camera, but yeah, it doesn't look sure. like anything. Fits in my pocket. So I would like go up to something, take the camera out. I don't have to look through the lens, so I'm not. Right. In, in a recognizable photographer mode. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I could just hold the camera, and it was a wide-angle lens, so you're holding something like a few inches away from this display that somebody has with your body in between the proprietor and what you're photographing. Take the picture, put the camera back in your pocket. And so it was, it was, it was a, a situation where you could easily be distracted, but it was just the right thing. It was what my work had been telling me to do. <laughs> and it was so like a roadmap. It, it, helped me, it helped me be in focus. <laughs> Excellent. 
So let's talk a little bit about the gallery. What year did you start this place? Your co-founder of Blue Sky. What, there when were did that five, happen? There were five of us who started the gallery in 1975. Wow. And we just wanted to see photographs more. And, you know, there were very few galleries that were showing photography. There were very few museums that were collecting or showing photography. There was actually a gallery in Oregon City, which is a little bit of a drive from here, but not too bad. Um, Oregon City is actually what they thought the big city would be. They didn't think it would be Portland. They thought it would be Oregon City. But anyway, it turned out to be Portland. But uh, this, uh, this guy, Shad Williams, had a, had a camera store, a gallery in a camera store. It was called the Shadow Gallery. It was named after himself with a tricky way. Um, and we would go down there to see shows. But we just wanted to see more shows. And there was a storefront that was available that was the front two rooms and then the third room was, uh, was a dark room that Ann Hughes and Bob DeFranco were sharing. And then there was a shared bathroom with the Guru Maharaji's Divine Light Mission next door. So uh, the, the, there were people doing weaving with looms in the, in the first two rooms, and they moved out. So suddenly Ann Hughes had, you know, three rooms. She only needed one. So she said, well, maybe we'll just put some pictures up. And Craig Hickman uh, said, well, we could have kind of a gallery. And uh, we know a lot Voila. of good photographers. And, and Ann said, yeah, that'd be good if we had a gallery. Then if a photographer came to town, they'd come to our gallery, and we'd meet them. Right now, photographers come down, we don't meet them, you know. So it, uh, it had this sort of friendly aspect to it from yeah, the beginning. very organic. And there were five of us, so we were open five days a week, and <laughs> it was very sort of logical. Uh, the part that we were wrong about when we started the gallery was that we were going to show local work. Uh, it almost immediately became national because there were so few so places. Few it's a, yeah. it, it, I often describe it as I thought I was just walking down the street. I looked behind, I was leading a parade. But there... The, the, the photographic nonprofits are almost all from that era. Houston Center for Photography is a little younger, but they're mostly from the 70s where there was just, there was so much demand. There was so much good photography going on and no place to show it. So anybody who showed up with a wall <laughs> had immediate uh, following. Immediate following. So, and and okay. we did, uh, and Hughes was a great graphic designer. So, and we, we knew Craig had a, a friend who was a commercial photographer who told us about a, a wholesale printer who actually did a good job. I mean, it was just like a one-color one press. It was for printing menus and stuff, but it wasn't. But the, the press man was a guy who'd been on this machine forever, and he knew how to make it work, you know? So we did posters for all of our shows. For, we did the first couple hundred shows. Each had a 16 by 20-ish poster. That's fantastic. And we got the mailing list. We got the mailing list from a local arts organization. We got the mailing list from the Light Gallery in New York. So... Right from the beginning, our, we had this sort of double audience. We had a local audience and a national audience of photographers. And that's continued all the way through the history of the gallery. We have a sort of equal, equal measure. Sure, <laughs> Local sure. and national audiences. We're actually better known nationally than locally, I think. But what can you do? And, and was it ever, I'm always intrigued by people, photographers who create organizations that assist other photographers. Because there's, it's difficult to make a living in photography. It's very competitive. People, you put your work on the wall, and if it's a successful show the following year, you kind of see there's other shows that pop up that sort of resemble that, and there's all that. Well, there should be. I mean, basically, people, people understand this about scientific research, that the, your research is based on what every other scientist has figured out. Exactly. And that's how it works in the arts, too. I mean, if you, if you go to museums, museums are very timid, and they, they don't want to, they see somebody, and their photography curator says, this person is really great, we should buy some work. And they sort of say, well, let's wait until they're dead and see how much it sells for. If it's more than $100,000, we'll bid on it. You know, it's like, that's just the stupidest way to buy work. Because first of all, if you just spent that $100,000 on young photographers, you'd get a lot more pieces. And at least some of them would be the right ones. Right. But also, 
that photographer who ends up being the right one would have made a sale. They would have been able to pay their rent that month. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I think, um, I think that the way it really works is there's a, uh, there's a sort of a, a moving front that, that the whole team of photographers all over the world are moving together. Um, you know, that the, there, there are individual people who make a huge difference. I mean, the obvious example being Robert Frank. Robert Frank, everybody sure. talks about after Robert Frank, photography is all different. The rules are all different. But Robert Frank didn't come from nowhere. And, and if, you, if you look at the Photo League, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, the, other, uh, the other photographers that he was hanging out with, his best friend Louis Farrer, if you look at his work, it's like, oh, well, here's where Robert Frank, I mean, we're all yeah. standing on his shoulders, but sure. he was standing on some shoulders too, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and that's how it is. And so I think to have a museum collection, this is the great thing that Ann Tucker did in Museum of Fine Arts Houston. She saw some work that was good. Well, how much are these? $200? I'll take these five, you know? And, of course, that makes this unbelievable difference for the photographer who, who's, who maybe was going to give up. <laughs> now they're not going to give up ever. You know? But also it means that she has a collection that shows the, the interconnected way that photography actually advances sure. and that art in general actually advances. And very few places can have that. We have a, we have a program that started uh, – Jim Winkler uh, started behind it, and he's, he dropped out. Now he's, a, he's a, uh, an important – uh, philanthropist. He's a property developer who put this building together for Blue Sky and the other four art spaces in the building. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful space. Yeah, Jim is great. And and but anyway, but he started this thing of buying one print out of every show at Blue Sky for the museum's collection, and they're labeled in the museum's collection as part of the Blue Sky collection. So um, that that gives a, a sale to the gallery. It gives a sale to the artist. It lays down a permanent record in a museum. It gets the artist's work into a museum. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything about that is good. Everything. <laughs> and, and that's the, the other program that, that I know of that's actually going to have, at least for the time period since it, when it started, it's going to be laying down more of an interconnected pattern of how to, how to ideas actually propagate among people. You know, there's this, uh, there's this notion that, that we think that people are the unit and that ideas are the subunit. But maybe ideas are the unit and people are the subunit. People are what ideas develop to, to propagate themselves. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the idea of the, the meme. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. Have you noticed the, the age that we're living in is very much an age of immediacy? And have you noticed there being any sort of, has that impacted how people view work that I'll call considered work? So if work ends up on a gallery wall or in published form, typically that work's been reviewed and thought out and placed and sequenced. Has there been any changes in sort of how this work impacts people in a world that's, that's pretty obsessed with speed and technology? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's, a, there's a plus and a minus there. The plus is Basically, everyone in America has a camera in their pocket and is using it all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, and, and when you do that, I mean, quantity leads to quality. This is a basic principle. <laughs> Whatever you do, the more you do it, the better you get. <laughs> the practice. And, and practice and you, you're, you're that dialogue with your work. I mean, when you're just going out and taking selfies, but one of them is a lot just better than the others. Yeah. And then you get another one that's a lot better than the others. And they teach you how to make better pictures. <laughs> Your pictures will teach you how to do themselves. And uh, so anyway, so that's on the plus side. Um, the minus side is what we were talking about earlier with people not, uh, not 
printing things up and doing that sort of editing, if you, if you are doing your work and you're just posting things to Instagram and you're just looking at pictures one at a time, you're losing track of the way that a team can beat an individual. A team of pictures will beat an individual picture every time. And, and the, if, you, if you look at a well-considered exhibition, it's more than the sum of the parts. Sure. Each individual picture by itself is less powerful than that same picture is with the ones on either side of it, it providing a context for it. Uh, we had at my my uh, my father stepfather is an artist and and he and my mom were out here one time visiting and and we hang the shows uh, the, uh, Tuesday night our regular gallery meeting night with once a month we were show hanging, so he came with me to the gallery we were laying the prints out just spreading them around the room leaning against the wall on the floor in random order he kind of looked around and said well this isn't a very good show I said well we're, we're not through yet. And he went home, he and my mom went home, and we proceeded to hang the show. And then uh, two days later, he came back to the opening and went, is this the same work? This is great. (laughs) (laughs) And it is the same work, and it isn't the same work, because the sequencing is really important. So so I got out of photo school in 1992. First job I got was in a newspaper, and I had an editor at the paper. So every day when I came back, it was the same person standing there waiting, and he would look at the, you would look at the work together. Uh-huh. And so I sort of grew up in the age of having an editor. And then the generation after me, I saw that started to disappear. And a couple of years ago, we did a project at Blurb, and there was a photographer that we were working with who had assembled a group of images for a book. And we hired someone, an editor, to come in and do an edit. And I hadn't really been around the editing world for quite a while. And what he did with those images was so good and Mm. so far beyond anything that we had been able to put together. And I just held it up as another example of that same thing, of like this is the, the, the sum of the parts is far more than you know, this, the, of, of the individual pieces. And yeah. it's, uh, it's a point that I think, I don't, you know, it's kind of getting a little bit lost today, but interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, if I can just put together a couple of different things, synthesize together a couple of things that we've already said, sure. which is the editing is not a final step in terms of how do you present something to the public. Editing is an important step while you're in process. Like, well, I didn't try to shoot the Atje thing without having these two six-month intermediate intermediate edits edits, Mm -hmm. where you find out what you're doing, you find out what's working, what's not working, why it's working, and and it's not just a matter of, oh, yeah, are they in focus? It's a matter of, what am I focusing on? Yeah, (laughs) and how do do they work together? What am I missing? How do they work together? What am am I? Because I always feel like you have to have enough of an idea to get you out the door with a camera in your hand. But if when you get to the end of the project, if that's the same idea, it's a failed project. You didn't discover anything. I mean, Columbus was trying to go to India, yeah. but people already knew India. He ended up ruining the lives of a lot of Native Americans, but discovering a whole new continent. Exactly. So I think you have to, I think you have to be sort of um, uh, ready to evolve and or jettison your original idea no, that's a really <laughs> when you good come point. on to something better. That's a really we, good point. We did a show, uh, a photographer from Malma, um, Martin Bagran, he was in India working on some kind of a project that just wasn't working out. And he, he went to the beach early in the morning. He's like, what am I doing, you know? And this bus pulls up at the beach, and these, these men pile out. And he's like, wait a minute, what's going on with this? And he starts photographing them. And what it is is it's a group of men from a village far from the ocean, <laughs> none of whom have ever seen the ocean. So they put, pool their money together and charter a bus and drive to the ocean and discover it. 
Oh, wow. And it's this amazing body of work. I mean, it's the best thing he's ever done, but it's also whoever you were, it would probably be the best thing you ever did. You know, the eyes. Not not if you're Robert Frank, maybe, but, um, and it's a great project. And it's just like, yeah, he he had enough of an idea to get him to India. (laughs) And he had enough sense to pay attention when something more interesting was going on than his idea was (laughs) and switch. I think that's such a great point of if you come back with the same idea that you left that got you out with the camera, that it's kind of a failure. I think that that's a really great way of looking at it, that it has to be a little you have to discover something or evolve or an accident has to happen. I think I might have seen that India work. He might have entered that in the Palm Springs Festival slideshow because I think it, it rings a bell, and if it's the same work, it is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's work. great stuff. Uh, so and I found that in a little book, actually. I was at Perry Photo, and there was a book of it. There's a, a, a Swedish publisher that had like only like 10 books, but I bought six of them or seven of them. It's like, Fantastic. This, this publisher is on the same wavelength as me. I like whatever he likes. <laughs> That's the perfect transition to talk a little bit about your books. You've done a lot of books, and you've done both traditionally published books and print-on-demand books. Yeah. How, what does a book mean to a guy like you who's already got all of these books and you've done so many shows? What does a book mean? Well, a book is an amazing thing because, I mean, if you, if you see a show, you see a show, generally speaking, once on one particular day when you've got one set of things in your mind and, and that's it. You don't usually, I mean, maybe you come back and see it again if you really were moved by it or something. But a book is something that you buy and that lives at your house. Yep. <laughs> and it's the difference between a date and living with somebody. You know, you, you, you interact with the book in all kinds of different moods and headspaces. And, and I think there's a, there's a richness to being able to go back to it over and over again, you know, across the years, not just across the days. <laughs> you, you move with books. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody that, anybody that's ever moved in their life ends up with a giant <laughs> stack of boxes of yeah. books. Like, what do I do with these? Yeah. And there's this beautiful thing that no one ever wants to get rid of books. You want to keep them. They're like children that you take with you yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I have to, I have to give uh, Martin Parr and Jerry Badger credit for, for pointing out that of this huge knot of photographers that came of age in the 70s that, you know, there was part mm-hmm. of this, I was saying this sort of this, this parade that's suddenly following us down the street, that all of those photographers basically learned from books. That's how you saw things. You, there weren't things in galleries, there weren't things in museums. It was sure. all coming from books. And every, uh, what's John Zarkowski's term, photographer of ambition, which I think is a pretty that, good yeah, term. that's nice. <laughs> every photographer of ambition knew every book every photo book that was out. Sounds in, inconceivable now where there's like right. 100 yeah. a week, sure. but there w- didn't used to be 100 a week. And, uh, and the, the, uh, there were some photographers, uh, uh, Ralph Gibson and Les Crim started putting out books that were just on an individual series, mm-hmm. not like a lifetime retrospective. Right. All the photo books before that had been a lifetime retrospective. You know? And they were doing like chapters. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's yeah. a project I did, Little People of America, The Deer Slayers, The Incredible Case of the Stack of Wheats Murders. You know? <laughs> and that was a really exciting idea, that it was a whole uh, rethinking of what a photo book could be really, you know, I'm not saying there weren't photo books that were like weren't like that before, but not so much. Yeah, and uh, and it was it really kind of blew everybody's mind to think you could you could do a book just of a project. You don't have to wait till you're 70 years right. old, right? Mid career you know. or yeah. end of career. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so I think that that notion of wanting to um, bring something to the international potluck that had fed you, <laughs> um, I think was a, was an entirely 
understandable and logical one. I mean, it's a team sport. You're on the team. You want to make a contribution to the team. You want to go in there and rebound and pass the ball. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think you know, uh, one of the things that is so satisfying to me about having the gallery here and being, as you say, co-curating hundreds of shows is that it, it's like playing point guard. It's like when, when you pass the ball to your teammate and they score, you're both happy. Yeah, you got an assist. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, assists are really and, important. And, uh, and I think to have this notion that, that everything's very competitive and I got to knock you down because that raises me up and all that, that's just not an effective way of working. It doesn't work on a basketball team and it doesn't work mm-hmm. in the arts. And, and for people who are, who are team players, and, and I think a lot of the, uh, you know, if you, if you read about or talk to somebody who knew Ansel Adams, he was like having photographers over at his house all the time. He was interested in everything. Yeah. He didn't want to only see nature photographs. He was interested in everything. Exactly. You know, and it's the same with Robert Frank. I mean, I, you know, Robert is, oh, these Japanese photographers doing such interesting work. Let me, let me try to get you to show some of these. And, and I mean, I think there's a, there's a, uh, uh, the same way people do with books. You read a book that's exciting. You want everybody to read it. See a movie that's great. You tell all your friends to go to it, you know. That's basically what we're doing. We saw this great body of work, and you should check it you out. Check it out. And, you know, with, with art, it's, art isn't about uh, decoration and prettiness, and this would look nice with my sofa. Art is about seeing something that changes your understanding of the world in some way. So there's a, there's a uh, it's a higher stake <laughs> thing than just sort of recommending a restaurant to somebody. It's, it's sure. like, you know, here's this work that's about, uh, we, we have work by a Greek photographer photographing Egypt, and, and you look at these photographs of Egypt and you kind of understand what's going on in Greece. You understand these are really sort of self-portraits of the, what, how Greeks understand the world as well sure. as looking at how Egyptians understand the world. And, you know, it's, these are things that are powerful to know. And we could actually have a whole series of lect- monthly lectures here that are about the issues that the work raises. That's mm. an idea we've talked about. We might do it at some point. Um, but I think f- photography is about the world. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which photography is about making a nice composition and making a rich image that works, but finds the, finds the powerful metaphor that tells right. the story in a more complicated way than just a literal description. But the stories that they're telling are stories about the real world. Sure. And, and that's interesting. I mean, a third of our shows are from international photographers now, and it would be even more if we had more money, frankly. But uh, there's a lot of things we want to do that are just too expensive to get the work from Europe to here. Sure. You know, so somebody says it has to be framed. It. We say, You're okay, we can't show it then because we can't afford it and you can't afford it and there's nobody else willing to pay. You know? <laughs> just had that conversation with someone else the other day that was talking about a show and the framing cost and yeah. whether or not it was going to be prohibitive or not. Yeah. Do you, what do you, you've done print-on-demand books. What was it yeah. like to do your first print-on-demand book, having come from the traditional publishing world? Well, I, yeah, we've, we've done a bunch of books, traditional publishing. We do a yearbook at Blue Sky that's, uh, we do show 25 photographers a year. It's at least six pictures from each photographer. So it's a, you know, it's a nice book. It's printed in China. We used to be printed in America at this place that, the, with the one color at a time press. Uh, and then that press man retired and that, that was, was it. the new guy could not make good results out of that machine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, happens. maybe if the place had still been in business, maybe by now he could, <laughs> but he wasn't a 40 year guy. He was a one year guy. Yeah. That's tough. So anyway, but, uh, but now we're printing in China and everything looks great and that's very affordable. But, um, Luis Delgado had been doing some print on demand books and, and he showed them to me and said, you know, this is the way to go. This is great. And I said, well, 
you know, this does look great and this yeah. is interesting. And he was doing black and white, which is a challenge. Color looks great. And I'm a yeah. color photographer now. So, like, the only real objection was not there for me. It was not a not was apt. the problem. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I started doing... I go to these portfolio reviews like PhotoFest, which is the yep. original. Yep, yep. Uh, but also we have PhotoLucida here. That's, yep. a, that, that's the first American PhotoFest copycat. <laughs> now there's a lot. Um, and uh, and it was just made sense to, to go to Blurb and make a little book that you were going to hand out to somebody. If somebody says, oh, yeah, this is kind of nice. I well, would you like to have a book? You yeah, know? you can and, actually you know, you're this. spending 20-something bucks on the book probably. But – you're spending, I mean, that 20-minute appointment with somebody costs you 50 bucks. Right. And then if you have a hotel and plane fare and stuff. So to actually be able to hand them your work for them to look at at 3 in the morning sometime. Yeah. <laughs> that's worth another 20-something bucks. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was kind of how I started doing it. And then we, it went to another level. I, we had a photographer from the Dominican Republic, Pedro Farias Nardi, who, who called me up and he said, you know, I had a... I had a very well-respected photo publisher say, you know, we want to do your book. And he was very excited, of course. And they said, and you're going to have to raise $30,000 of it. Mm -hmm. So he called me up to say, you know, I'm in the Dominican Republic. There's not $30,000 lying around in the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's a slight exaggeration. He didn't really say that. But, you know, I'm from the Dominican Republic. That's a lot of money. Yeah, for and sure. And is, is that a good deal? And I said, well, I can't really tell you that's a good deal. I can tell you that's is the deal. And yeah, if another publisher comes to you, they're going to tell you the same thing. But uh, I have to figure something out for you. I, that's that's really unacceptable, that's that that's the only deal. <laughs> and then I had a couple other photographers that we've shown basically come to me with the same question. Mm -hmm. And so I said, oh, look, we got to do something. And, and what are we going to do? And, you know, you can do these print-on-demand books, but then there's no distribution. They're not in bookstores. There's not a, there's not a way to, to do distribution. But we were getting ready to have a, sh a show celebrating Blue Sky's 40th birthday at the Portland Art Museum. So we're, we're doing, putting a lot of energy into, like, look at our history and all this stuff. Sure. And I said, well, what about if we did 40 books at once that were monographs from shows that we've had at Blue Sky over our 40-year history, put them out all at once, mm -hmm. and had, had all 40 photographers Facebooking about it, putting it on their website, blogging about right, it. Go right. to the photo bloggers and say, hey, look, we just published 40 books at once. Isn't that interesting? You know? Just drum it up. And, yeah, just generate. I mean, it's still all those – there's not in any bookstores. All right. the sales have to go through the, the uh, MagCloud blurb website. Yep. But, but if you have a whole bunch of people sending everybody to a central page with all 40 books – ended up being 37 books. Three of them didn't get done in time. All 37 books. Yep. Then – you, you might get there to buy Pedro's book, right. but you might say, "Whoa, look at check out this other look at book, <laughs> Hillerbrand Maximin. This is great, you know, whatever it is." And that was the idea was that we would get this crossover where the audience sharing would actually make a market. And so we we basically did it: uh, the cost of the books plus fifteen percent royalty for the artists and fifteen percent for the gallery. And we just. Um, Ben Hickman is the son of one of the Blue Sky founders, Craig Hickman. Craig and I did most of the layout. Uh, ben, I think, did one, the basic design, mm -hmm. and they did one. We wanted to have a very distinctive design so that when you looked at it, you would say, oh, this is one of those Blue Sky books. Blue Sky books, yep. And, and, and in every one, there's an ad showing the other 37 Blue Sky books. <laughs> Smart. We're getting ready to do a second batch, so there'll have to be two pages. I have to have another page hey, of the next batch. <laughs> that's a good use of paper. Yeah. 
So anyway, so it's actually worked out pretty well. I mean, it's not, you know, we're not making the New York Times bestseller list, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think, I think most illustrated books in history, even the ones that have sold pretty well, are never going to make that list. So yeah. I, I think it's pretty, I think people sometimes, especially young photographers, get skewed in the idea of even if a, an illustrated book is successful, how many copies that's going to be. If you can sell 500 copies of a book, that's a pretty good, yeah. that's a pretty that's good what, thing. That's what an Israeli would do. They would do 500 copies, almost everything 500. I mean, yeah, Michael that's, Kenna, that's, they would do more. But basically, there's they're, normally, you know, it's 500 copies. And they would sell them out. And then you wouldn't have to worry about remaindering them or anything. You know? That's so it, like, yeah. You want it, you got to buy it. You're not going to find it any cheaper anywhere. And then if it sells out creates demand for the next one. People start to say, you know, Nazraeli and these small publishers that do these, you just know when it when something comes from Nazraeli, you know it's going to be good. And so people say, man, I got to get they my just buy them sight now. unseen. That's yeah. it. Sight unseen, they yeah. buy them. But anyway, but so my idea was that if we did that, there's all these bodies of work that we showed, let's say in the 80s, that the photographer isn't isn't still flogging. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, they got new work. They're not thinking about it anymore. Um, and like, for example, I contacted Carl Baden and I said, look, we want to show sex, death and the history of photography and your, your show that you did before that. Let's do a book of those two things. He said, well, I don't, I don't have any prints of those. I'd have to make new prints, but yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I really, I mean, I really feel like in terms of point guard satisfaction, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. I felt like, okay, that was work that was really important, good work that nobody was championing. Mm-hmm. And and you know if he got hit by a truck there were no prints gone. yeah there was nothing who would even know uh, I mean uh, uh, you know there's so and we did the book and it's actually one of the one of the top selling ones in the series I mean it's great work and so that's to me that's the most satisfaction it's like this is not something that anybody was championing it's not something that would have been remembered in the history of what happened. And I think one of the problems with the uh, history of photography with, and in larger history in general is you wait till everybody dies and then you try to figure out what was happening. Right. But then you can't figure it out anymore. That's it. I mean, like I, I was alluding earlier to Les Crims, how important Les Crims was. But he's left out of all the history. Nobody ever talks about Les Crims. He's completely forgotten. Well, I think, you know, we get a version of history. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's like they wait till after the fact, and then you try to go back and detective work and piece it back together. But, you know, what happens when the, the people in the periphery are gone too? Then you've got yeah. no no history there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Baloke's Storyville portraits fall out of an upholstered chair. The negatives are like, oh, well, these actually <laughs> exist. Okay, well, yeah, they're cool. Yeah, here they but are. But they talked to somebody who was contemporaneous because that happened at a point where <laughs> there was still somebody alive. He said, oh, yeah, he took a whole bunch of pictures in the opium dens in New Orleans, too. I don't know where those are. <sighs> so those are gone. Those didn't survive. But if somebody had been caring and paying attention during the photographer's lifetime, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> both of those bodies of work would still be around. Yeah. But. But I think, you know, the nice thing about the, the MagCloud in particular is that the books are really affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the average book is 64 pages, and I don't know what the price is, about 20 bucks or something. I mean, even with giving money to photographer and giving some money it's to Blue together, Sky, yeah. uh, they're still really affordable so that somebody can look at something and say, well, sure, I'll get that. Yeah, I'll take it. And, I mean, you know, when I was a young photographer in the 70s, these photo books came out, they were all... Um, small perfect bound paperbacks that may be like seven inches square or something, you know. Yep. And they were like seven dollars and fifty cents. The, the the Animals by Gary Winogrand, which is one of the greatest photo books ever, yeah. was two dollars and ninety five cents. That's a bit steep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I yeah. mean there were, I went to the Zine Symposium in town yesterday and I saw books for a dollar that yeah. I looked at yeah. and said, That's really nice. They yeah. were they weren't photography books, they were based on illustration. 
but I thought that's fantastic. I mean, it's a dollar. They're obviously they're not making a tremendous profit on that, but it's a quality piece of a book that I would want to yeah. keep around. But all this, I mean, you don't do art to make money. I mean, if you if you want to do something to make money, art is a really stupid choice because you end up getting paid about a penny an hour, except that it's usually just an IOU. You don't actually get the penny. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just the idea I mean, of the penny. The the the. The financial realities of being an artist is you got to get the money from somewhere else, mm-hmm. and and being an artist is a way to spend money. It's not a way to make money, but it's a way to spend money in a way that's really satisfying. And I mean, you see people have they they get a high paying job that drives them crazy yep. and saps all their energy, and so they spend money getting a sports car or something. But you know, if you didn't need a sports car, <laughs> yeah. if you were getting your satisfaction from making artwork. How much money you need goes way down. <laughs> way down, and your happiness goes way up. Yeah, and that's why people in the arts work as uh, waiters and waitresses and stuff. I mean, it's like you can control your hours so you make just enough money to pay your bills, and you have the rest of your time for your art. Your art. You know, whether it's acting or whether it's writing or whether it's making visual art or whatever, you, you're just too, your time is too valuable to you to waste it at work. So what, how do you see creatives, what's their role in society? Is it to disrupt? Is it to inform? Is it to inspire? I, I think sort of creatives have this 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 uh, responsibility to to do things that stir the pot. But how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, the way I usually talk about it is that uh, that the general forces of society are like the when you kind of gather animals into a killing shoot, you know? It's a sort of gather everybody together and say, you, you all need to wear this same brand of blue jeans. You need to drink this same kind of sugar water and you need to do this the same and you do that the same. Conformity. And, and, and to narrow down your notion of what's possible. And that the role of artists is to say, well, you you could wear those same BVDs, but what if you wore them on your head? You know, or, I mean, it's it's to kind of open things back up again and kind of yeah. get people to, to kind of break through those fences that are that are trying to narrow them down. And I mean, to me, uh, it's not, you know, I'm talking about it in terms of fashion and soda and so things that are more trivial. Right. But you're also trying to break down the notions in terms of, is it is it acceptable for the government to be surveilling every aspect of your life? Is it acceptable for us to be killing people all over the world? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're the yeah. larger issues. You know, is it acceptable to have nuclear weapons? You know, <laughs> I mean, it, the role of artists is, I think, to to um, uh, sort of, as as ideas sort of harden up, to sort of crack them and break them loose, and and that's why artists tend to do things that are a little bit have some shock value or something like that. Is if you're going to knock somebody out of their rut, it takes energy to get out of a rut. You yep. you get dug down. You need to you need to actually you need your rut is three foot deep. You need to get three feet in the air. You know? <laughs> yeah, you, you, <laughs> you, know? you need a good spark. Yeah. And so uh, I noticed today that there were artists that were installing work in the no-go zone in Fukushima in Japan, that they okay. had gone into these villages that were, you know, off-limits and put up installations. Uh-huh. And they were talking about both the upside and the downside of that. But it basically has basically took our vision and put it back towards Fukushima and said, you know, hey, this, is, this is, isn't going away anytime soon. So yeah. it's a good role. What, um, let's talk about failure. Failure is, I think, something today that's viewed a little differently than it was at certainly when I was in school and probably when you were in school. What, tell me about, uh, I guess, a, a flamboyant failure that you had, something that you absolutely fell on your face but ultimately said, you know, I, that didn't work, but it sort of made me look in this other direction. <laughs> Anything jump out at you? 
I don't. I can't think of anything that's really sort of flamboyant. I mean, I think. I think that for me, uh, it's sort of about um, mini failures that that are that are part of my navigating. You know, yeah, yeah. To, I mean, it's part of what we were talking about earlier. It's like you had an idea, but it wasn't such a good idea. But now you can see what is a good idea. Yeah. So I think you know the the if you're if you're willing to let go of something there's a limit to how big a failure it can be you know <laughs> sure no, that's a good point and uh, and i've actually been uh i've been pretty lucky with sort of my goofy ideas that i have have actually had a lot of longevity i mean blue sky is turning 40 this fall the nine gallery which is a co-op gallery that sublets some space from blue sky that i'm a member of it's now 27 that's 40 years is Remarkable. 40 years, long time, 27. Yeah. Yeah. I started the Portland Grid Project. That's been going for over 20 years. It's basically, I, I felt like with my work, I wanted my work to say the ordinary world is not ordinary. The ordinary world is really amazing. You've got to look at it harder. But I was going to so many exotic countries and photographing that I, like the subtext of my work was shifting to the ordinary world is ordinary. You've got to go somewhere exotic. You know? So I wanted to do a project in Portland. So I took a map of the city, and you know it has a blue line grid on it. This is ABC on one axis and one, two, three on the other axis for the street finding function. Okay. And I just said, how about if I photograph in each square of, of this map one month in each square and do the whole city over 89 months? Wow. And then I invited uh, 11 other photographers to do it with me, and this being Portland, a very sort of teamish place, yeah, <laughs> team yeah. spirit place. Everybody said, oh, yeah, good idea. And it takes about nine years to do the whole city, and they're on the third round now. I did the first two rounds, uh, and then I dropped out. Various people dropped in and out. And it's still And going. now round three is going, chugging along well. I know some of the photographers in it, and I just I asked them about it last week. Oh, yeah, no, we were in a, we were in a tough grid. It was really interesting. You know? God, oh, yeah, I incredible. remember that grid. You know? That's incredible. Yeah. So if you go to portlandgridproject.com, you can see there's thousands of pictures up. And, yeah. What's the one thing you don't have that you really need or want? Well, the thing that I would really, the thing that I would really like is if Blue Sky had enough money that we could pay the photographers an honorarium and pay them to come out here for their shows. That's, uh, and, and you know, for these occasional shows that are just too expensive that I was mm -hmm. talking about earlier, yeah, yeah. it would be nice to not have to worry about that. And you know, We've struck a balance. Uh, we we have a beautiful space now. We did a capital campaign for the space. We laid aside some uh, uh, investment pool of money that we can draw. We draw about uh, fifty thousand dollars a year off of that to help run the space. And but it's just it's hard to get mm -hmm. uh, enough money to do things in the way that would be really the best for the ecosystem of photographers. I mean, if a photographer has a show here and they don't come and see it. Yeah, no, that's hard. They don't, yeah. they don't get the full value of having the show. I mean, people print bigger and bigger nowadays with digital printing. It's not like you're just printing an 8x10 trays anymore. Right, you know? yeah. It's like 8x10 feet. 24-inch roll printer is like that's a, that's a hobbyist printer, you know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and you, what that means is you put a show together, and you can't ever see the show. You don't have a big enough apartment, particularly if you live in New York. Right. You don't have a big enough apartment to see them together. See yep. Um, and so I think for people to come out here, and we have in Portland, the, all the galleries in the downtown area have an opening at the same time on the first Thursday of the month every month. Okay. And we get between, usually between 700 and 1,000 people at the opening. So if the artist is here at the opening, yeah. and here's 1,000 people coming by to look at their work, 
that's that's, that's not so numbers. easy to replicate no, that's <laughs> anywhere good, else. Good you know? numbers for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's gone as high as 1,200, I think, is our tops. It's gone as low as 600 is our sort of minimum. That's still pretty good. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, before this coordinated First Thursday openings, you'd sometimes have an opening where there only 25 people. You know, the, the newspaper screwed up the listing or, right. you know, whatever. And you'd have, if you had the artist there with 25 people to show, that's really embarrassing. We had Martin Parr came for a show way back when. And, uh, and we, we were going to have him do a lecture. And we had just had Jim Goldberg do a lecture. And the people were, like, back down the stairs. People were, like, two stories down trying to listen to the echo going down the stairs, you know. It's like, so we, we were afraid to do it in the gallery because the gallery was pretty small. And it's like, we're just going to completely overflow. It's Martin Pars is a really important yeah. photographer. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was when his uh, book on, on Brighton came out. So it was, it's mm. pretty early in his career, but still. Yeah. Um, and so we went to the museum. We said, can we use your auditorium? Oh, yeah, sure. So we publicized it was in the auditorium. And five people came. Oh. And it, whatever it was, a 600-seat auditorium. And it was just, it was terrible. Brutal. That's brutal. <laughs> I've seen that happen a few times in yeah. Los Angeles yeah. with photographers. But, I mean, you know, we've, we, um, our Photo Lucida Festival I was talking about earlier mm, is, yeah. is chugging along. That's been going since 2000, so that's 15 years. We started the critical mass. Uh, that's been probably a dozen years, and that's going along well. That was that was an idea of mine that we cooked up together at, in uh, Photolucida, and so I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the sort of goofy things that we've done have done pretty well. Done really well. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that lasts that long has yeah. got some good bones to it. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, there's this aspect. Every, everybody knows that one person can't lift a piano, but a whole bunch of people can lift a piano. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of how we do things around here. And that's part of why everything works better. <laughs> I mean, do you hurt yourself picking up a piano? Not if you have enough people. Not if there's enough. <laughs> yeah. Can you have a disaster? You have a, a fantastic failure? Actually, I, I was, uh, um, when I was still in high school, there was an avant-garde festival that would happen every year. And, and it was always in a completely, one time it was on the Staten Island Ferry. You had to pay a nickel every half hour to get back on. One time it was a parade down Central Park West. And, uh, and so I was gathering up at, uh, around 110th Street where they were, where they were sort of staging the, the stuff, the parade, and sort of hanging around. And somebody said, hey, hey, you kids, come over here. The last thing in the parade is going to be we're rolling this piano down at the end. And we've taken all the pads out so that all the keys will vibrate. So it'll just be like this, you know, the end of day in the life that's going to yeah. 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 And, uh, and will you kids push this piano? He said, oh, yeah, sure. So, you know, it's the nature of the thing that everybody's gone. We're the last ones. We start pushing this thing, and we make it a, maybe half a block, and the front leg oh, caves, caves in. in. And so the piano goes, boom! <laughs> you know, this incredible that we're standing going, wow, uh -oh. what a sound. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> now what do we do? Yeah, <laughs> Just sort of flipped it off the road. <laughs> you know, but, but so in terms of uh, sort of fantastic failures with a piano, that, that's, that's kind of... That's a good one. That was a good one. It was a great momentary experience anyway. But. So last question is, where do, you, where do you get inspired outside of photography? Where do you... I love movies. Movies. Yeah, I love movies. We just, went, we just had at the, at the Film Study Center here at the museum, they just did a, a Roy Anderson retrospective, his, his trilogy of films, uh, the most recent one... Uh, a pigeon sits on a branch thinking about reality or whatever, something like that. I don't, I don't quite have the right title, I think. I don't know if it's thinking about some of like that. But anyway, but he, it's part of a trilogy that are amazing. They're like, um, uh, it, I mean, he, he worked with Bergman, so they have that sort of um, Scandinavian mood to them. 
but it, they're like a cross between Fellini and Edward Hopper in their visual style. And they're these little vignettes, these amazing vignettes. And we saw four of those films. And I mean, they're just so powerful. And I think film is, is the most powerful medium. When I was in school in, this, in the early 70s, I mean, video was so terrible. If you came from a place of photography, yeah. just the quality of video was unacceptable. If you look at these old Wegman videos or something, yeah. it's like, I'm sorry, I, you can do that, but I can't do that yeah. because I'm used to fine prints. You know? Yeah, I'm not doing that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and to shoot f movie film, I mean, 16-millimeter film, you buy the film, you get it developed, yep. you get a print made, so you're not putting your original in the projector, which is... Yep, you should never do. <laughs> yep, risky. And it was, that was a month's rent. I mean, I had cheap rent, but for three minutes, a month's rent? Yeah, how do you learn? How do you, how do you get enough quantity to build up your quality? You know? Yeah, you just it's can't. still that way. I mean, people that are shooting 16 film and 8 now and film students, it's still really expensive. Yeah, but they can shoot digital video now. Oh, digital now, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a, you know, people are making movies on their phones. I mean, I have a, I have a 5D, Canon 5D camera. People make, people make theatrical movies with a 5D. Oh, yeah, they were making, you know, the TV show House years ago used the first 5D to, to yeah. film an episode. And, and there was a film that came out a couple of weeks ago that I think was shot in L.A. And the, it, it won all kinds of awards, and the director didn't say anything until it was screening and said, oh, by the way, the whole thing shot with the iPhone. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's pretty, pretty <laughs> remarkable. So I think it's, I mean, if I, was, if I was a young person interested in photography and film going to school now, I'm not sure I would have ended up in photography. I mean, for me, it had to do with, I can just go in my dark room and I can make prints. Can make I can go out and photograph. I can just do it. Right. I don't, I don't need anybody to collaborate with me, and, which is funny that I would say that because then I ended up collaborating on everything I do in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, I, I wanted to be able to just go out and do something. And I had this idea that when I studied photography, you know, I was going to learn how to make a good print. And actually what happens is by the time you actually have a good image, you've made so many prints that you know how to make a good print just from experience. That's it. You don't have to learn, you don't have to learn that. That comes free. It comes for <laughs> hours and hours. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. I emailed you out of the blue. And oh, no, it's my pleasure. Nice enough to come down here. I really appreciate it. Great information and was really excited to, to, to finally talk to you. Okay, let me put in one last plug. If you're interested in these Blue Sky books we're talking about, if you go to... Uh, uh, blueskygallery.org. Uh, you'll see a page that says Blue Sky Books, a, a link, and, and just click it and you can see all our books. And go get them. Excellent. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks so much.